I don't know whether you agree. Do you think there's... It seems to me that there's, there's a lot going on at the moment. Is that just me who thinks that? It feels like there's a lot going on. A lot going on for us. I know that there are a number in the church family who've got a lot going on. Um, for us as a church, there's a lot going on. For us as a society. Um, it just seems like... You know, maybe it's always been a bit like this, but it seems... I guess uh, a number of us will get our news from the BBC. I feel like... Uh, a few years ago, it used to be that if you went on the BBC News website, it would sort of tell you the news. If there was something really big happening, then it would sort of say breaking news, you know, with big red and, and live, follow the updates. It feels like that's all the time. You know, you, you check the news, there's always something massive happening at the moment. Now, maybe that's just the way that we're reporting it, or maybe I haven't been around long enough to sort of realise that actually maybe it was ever thus. But actually, um, somebody... This week, who's an older member of the church family, said to me, it feels as though there's a, it's really more chaotic. He actually said, it feels like we're living in the end times. And I just thought, well, that's quite something for somebody who, you know, to say that. I don't know whether you agree. But of course, when things get chaotic and difficult, uh, we cry out for somebody for help, don't we? Uh, we need somebody strong to rescue us when we're in trouble and it looks like that's what's happening politically in recent years people are pointing out that from east to west uh, different countries are increasingly crying out for somebody strong Uh, barack obama gave a uh, speech not long after he'd left office in which he rather pointedly uh, took a pot shot at his successor without directly referencing him by name Uh, but he said this strongman politics are on the ascendant I think people are observing that that's true. I guess he's talking about people like Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping and Donald Trump. He says, I'm not being alarmist, I'm simply stating the facts. Look around. Strong men seem to be rising up everywhere. Not necessarily the kind of strength that we need, but I think probably you'd agree we do. Well, I think we need somebody, don't we? Powerful and strong to rescue us. Well, that's the reason why John is writing this gospel. John, St. John, who wrote this, which we've just read, met the strong deliverer that we all need, and he actually tells us about the extraordinary displays of power that he witnessed Jesus perform, and he wrote them down for us so that we can put our trust in him. We keep mentioning this verse, which uh, he says at the end of his gospel, the reason why he wrote it, he says that, uh, that Jesus performed many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. They're recorded elsewhere, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The other three Gospels had been written by the time John came to write his Gospel, and they record 34 different unique miracles which Jesus performed, which John says they've been covered elsewhere. But, he says, these are written, the ones he's writing about in his Gospel, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John very specifically says that he's hand-picked seven miracles, which he calls signs, uh, to include as he's painting this portrait of Jesus, the Messiah. So we've been working our way through these. As I say, if you're just joining us, uh, the last few weeks we've looked at four out of the seven signs, and this is the fifth. And the question that I've had in my mind, and the question we all ought to have this morning as we read John 6 this Uh, episode of Jesus walking on the water. The question is, why 
Is this sign one of John's seven? Why on earth does John include this? He tells us that he doesn't intend to go over the same ground already covered by the other Gospels. Well, in which case, why does he include this one? Because actually, Mark and Matthew do include uh, Anna, the walking on the water, and in more detail, actually, if you read Matthew's version of Jesus walking on the water, uh, it's got that amazing bit about Peter getting out the boat and having a go as well, uh, which John doesn't even mention in the bit that we've just read. So why is John... Out of, he could pick any number of different things that Jesus did. Why does he include Jesus walking on the water as one of the seven signs which he's chosen? That's what I've been pondering. And as we look closely, actually we see that John develops the interpretation of this miracle in a way that the other gospel writers don't. Yes, his account is shorter than Matthew's, but he includes one word in these verses which we've just read, which he repeats over and over again, in order to be able to tell us what the sign is pointing to. In fact, it's a little bit annoying that the version which we've got, the NIV, which is a very good translation, doesn't, uh, it, it translates, the, the word which John repeats is the word see. And, uh, and John translates it, I think, in order to avoid it not sounding repetitive in different ways. But have a look down at verse 16, and let's swap out the words which we've got. There's no different word for sea and lake in Greek, but the original word is see. So see whether you, have a look down, see whether you think John's making a point. When evening came, verse 16, his disciples went down to the sea, where they got into a boat and set off across the sea for Capernaum. Verse 18, a strong wind was blowing, the water, the, no, the sea grew rough. That again, that's the original word is sea. The seas grew rough. They rode three or four miles. They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the sea. Verse 22, the crowd was stood on the opposite shore of the sea. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they asked him, how on earth and when did you get here? So what's John pointing to? He's pointing to something to do with the sea. Now, in literature, the sea, of course, is representative of chaos and evil. The sea is brooding and, and restless and unrelenting and dangerous, and it's the place where strange beasts live and unexplainable things happen. Listen to the way that the sea is described in Moby Dick, which I have never read, but we all know that it's about the sea, and I like this quote. He says this, consider the subtleness of the sea, how its most dreaded creatures glide underwater, unapparent for the most part, and treacherously hidden beneath the loveliest tints of azure. Consider also the devilish brilliance and beauty of many of its most remorseless tribes as the dainty embellished shape of many species of sharks and consider once more the universal cannibalism of the sea all whose creatures prey upon each other carrying on eternal war since the world began consider all this and then turn to the green gentle and most docile earth consider them both and do you not find a strange analogy. See what he's saying? He says that the, the, the words he uses to describe the sea are dreadful and treacherous and devilish and remorseless and appalling and horrific. And again and again, the sea in literature is a place of evil. I haven't read Moby Dick, but I have seen Pinocchio, and we all know that Pinocchio has to go and rescue his father Geppetto, doesn't he? From the, you know, he's been swallowed by the great beast at the bottom of the ocean. And it doesn't take a great leap of imagination to see that all of these writers are picking up on biblical themes. Think of Jonah and the uh, whale, or Noah's 
flood. In fact, the Bible begins with the sea. The Bible begins with the account of how God brought order out of the chaos at the beginning of the world. And the picture is of the sea. Let me just read uh, the opening sentences of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. And so God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it and the water above it was called sky and there was evening and there was morning and God said let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear and it was so and God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas and God saw that it was good see God is the one who as the hymn puts it bids the mighty oceans deep their own appointed limits keep. That's a quote from the book of Job where God says to Job, look, I'm the one who shuts the sea up behind doors. I've fixed limits for the sea. I've said to the sea, this far you may come and no further. Here is where your proud waves halt. And yes, the sea is still there, isn't it? And probably we all remember where we were on Boxing Day in um, 2004 when we began to see those pictures coming in from the tsunami in, in Banda Aceh and to be reminded of what the sea is capable of. What's the thing that people are most worried about at the moment? The rising of the sea, the devastation it can bring. And no doubt there are many of us here this morning who are facing our own Storms and floods, not literal storms and floods, but the wind and the waves and the sea, they're a picture, aren't they, of, of, the, of, the, of the difficult times that we go through in life. King David in the Psalms, in Psalm 69, he prayed this, Save me, for the waters have come up to my neck. What a picture. He's not talking about actual water, but it's a picture, isn't it, of what he's going through. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I wonder if anybody feels like that this morning. I've come into deep waters. The floods engulf me, David says. And we want to cry out, as David did, for a rescuer, a strong deliverer to save us. Well, when Jesus started doing these signs, the people began to think, hang on a minute, maybe this is our man. Look at verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, that was the feeding of the 5,000, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And it's interesting that prophet is not, it's got a capital P, hasn't it? Not just any old prophet, the prophet. And actually, of course, the great deliverer in the Old Testament was Moses. He's the one who brought the people up out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. And actually, at the end of the books of Moses, there's a bit in Deuteronomy 18 where they're just about to enter the promised land, and Moses says... One day, God will raise up a prophet like me. And so the Jewish people lived with this expectation that one day there was a greater prophet going to come, a new Moses, who was going to be the strong deliverer. And Jesus arrives, starts doing all these signs. Remember, Moses did all, all number of signs. Uh, the first sign that Moses did was um, turning the 
uh, river into blood. And Jesus turns up, and the first time we looked at a few weeks ago was Jesus turning the water into wine. And people are going, hang on a minute. And then in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, Jesus says, just like Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And people are going, oh. And then he's talking with the woman at the well in chapter 4, who's looking for living water, and Jesus says, that's me. Moses gave living water from the rock, but I'm the living water. And so people are joining up the dots, and they're wondering, is this, um, is this the prophet who was to come? They saw the sign that Jesus performed, feeding the manna in the wilderness is what Moses did. Jesus always goes one better, and he says, I am the bread of life. And now they're wondering, could this be the prophet? So they try and make him king, and what does Jesus do? Verse 15, knowing that they intend to come and make him king, withdrew up a mountain by himself. Well, guess who else went up a mountain by himself? So all the way through, John's saying, this is, the, this is the new Moses. He's the one who is going to do these signs to show us that he's the great deliverer that we all need. Why does, Jesus include, why does John include this episode about the sea? Well, Moses, as Sue's just read, is the one who made a path across the sea. And of course, Jesus goes one better. He doesn't just make a path through the sea. He stands serenely on top of the sea to say that he's in perfect control. And he just walks straight across the sea. Look at verse 22. Then the crowd were on one shore of the sea. And in verse 25, they find him on the other side of the sea. And Jesus has walked about three or four miles, according to verse 19, from one side of the sea all the way across to the other. So it's not so much, this isn't so much the story of Jesus walking on the water. This is the story of Jesus walking across the sea. Did Jesus really do that? Remember, John tells us he was an eyewitness. He says he was there. He was probably in the boat in verse 19 when he saw Jesus do that, terrified, until he began to realise that Jesus was actually the one who made the sea. And the historians tell us that actually it's John's testimony here about what Jesus did. I mean, that, that one of the reasons why we say in the creed that Jesus was of one substance with God the Father by whom all things were made. Because John came to believe that Jesus was no less than the Son of God. Which is why he begins, in the beginning God was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus, the word, was with God in the beginning, and by him all things were made, including the sea, because only the one who made the sea can stand on top of it. So, so what? what what's that got to do with us? What does this sign point to for us today? Well, surely it tells us that maybe, and maybe we're sitting here this morning feeling like David in Psalm 69. I bet there are some of us who feel like the water is up to our neck, who are in the deep water and there's no foothold. Maybe we're feeling tossed around by the sea this morning. I think I want to suggest that society in general is a little bit like that, in danger of rising sea levels, not just meteorologically, but spiritually as well. Society is sinking into the miry depths. There's no foothold for us. I mean, don't the people of Melksham need saving? Don't we need a strong deliverer? Don't we, wouldn't it be amazing if everybody in our town realised that we're sinking and cried out 
to this strong deliverer. Well, what if that's us this morning? Maybe we're a little bit frightened, as they were in verse 19, but verse 20, Jesus says to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Literally, he says, Fear not, I am. That's what Jesus says. I am. The same words that God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. The great I am. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. I am all these things which are up around the room. I am the vine. Remain in me and you'll bear fruit. I am the resurrection. I am the, uh, the good shepherd for the sheep. I am the, the resurrection and the life. The way, the truth and the life. The, the light of the world. That's me. I am. I'm the one you need. And verse 21 They were willing to take him into the boat. And they got to the other side of the shore. So are we afraid this morning? Are we taking on water? Well, if we will take him in to the boat as they did, he will get us across to the other side. And if we've got Jesus in the boat, as I've currently got stuck in my head, we can smile at the storm. Because the one who stands serenely on top of the sea is the one who can get us across to the other side. Let's pray. And as we do so, I'm going to just read the vision which John had of the end. The Bible begins with the sea and it ends with the sea. John wrote the book of Revelation and he had a vision of a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And he saw the holy city, the heavenly Jerusalem, coming down, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new.